Hello, and welcome to the Untitled Gen X Podcast. A podcast hosted by two childhood best friends dedicated to the pop culture that raised us. I'm Kate, a writer, a midwife, a current day pop culture know-nothing, but nobody puts baby in a corner when it comes to the pop culture of my youth. And I'm Lori, a writer and pop culture lover who's still not over how my so-called life left us hanging. Welcome to the party, pals. Today, we're talking about the iconic Christmas or summer blockbuster, Die Hard, starring Bruce Willis and Alan Rickman. Yes, we invite you to come out to the coast. We'll get together, have a few laughs as we dive deep into the elevator shaft of the film's titillating trivia, its place in the great Christmas film debate, and its diehard fan base. Hey, Kate. Hey, Lori. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. What are we drinking? Eggnog. Spiked eggnog. Me too. I figured spiked eggnog was perfect for like a drunk diehard. Like, should we title this drunk diehard or just diehard? I think we should. I mean, we're not drunk yet, but there's still plenty of podcasts yet to come. (laughs) There's still plenty of time. It's delicious. You know, much like the debate of whether or not diehard is a Christmas movie, which we will get into, there's a big debate about eggnog. We are a house divided. In my house, Two people hate it and two people love it. Is the same person in your house who doesn't like cheese also a person who doesn't like eggnog? Yes, it must be the dairy. I was going to say, they clearly just have a dairy (laughs) bias. But a lot of people don't like it. What is not to like? Well, I don't know. It's creamy and delicious and it's like boozy as all hell. Like when you buy a spiked eggnog, whoo. Oh, was yours pre-spiked? Yes. I don't know the ABV on this baby, but it is intense. Like you saw me, I already took off my shirt. I'm wearing a tank top. I'm like three sips in and I, mama's flushed. Yeah. We can talk about this because it's a Gen X podcast, perimenopause and alcohol. Interesting combination. (laughs) Oh my God. I don't even want to talk about perimenopause. (laughs) But yeah, I'm sure I'll be bright red and very warm in a little bit. (laughs) But it's so worth it. Yeah. And I mean, drunk Die Hard, what's not to love? I mean, what is not to love about Die Hard? So a little bit of podcast trivia for y'all. Lori had not seen Die Hard before this project. I'm a Die Hard virgin. Honestly, it's one of those things that, you know, when something is really popular and it's just a blind spot in your life. Like you missed it for whatever reason. And then it gets to the point where you're like, I'm so cool because I haven't seen it. This is my brother in Star Wars. Okay. This is, which is very different. Your brother has never seen Star Wars. (laughs) My brother is like screaming loudly right now somewhere. is like a (laughs) super fan. So everyone in my family loves Star Wars, but my brother hadn't seen it. And then it got to a point, now I don't want to see it because I like being able to say I've never seen it. And I think that's where I kind of stand on Die Hard. I know enough about it because of its place in pop culture history. Okay, I say that, but I still want to keep saying John McClane's name is John McCain. I still want to do that. Like, I cannot stop that. I wrote it in my notes like 14 times. It's not John McCain. It's John McClane. These are two very different people. Yeah, so it was just one of those things that I hadn't seen. So I was like, well, I'm not going to see it now, but I am going to see it now because we're doing an episode on it. So do you know what I was like for a long time with that? And and now I have a block against it and I also didn't like it as much as every other person on the planet is uh, the movie with John Travolta and Samuel L. Jackson and Uma Thurman. Pulp Fiction? Yes. <laughs> what? I saw it in the theater. It blew my ever-loving mind. But I'm a fan of Quentin Tarantino. I love his films. I'm not a big Quentin Tarantino fan. And 
everyone I know saw that. Like some people I know saw it like three times while it was right. in theaters. Mm-hmm. And I was very, very late to that party. And I will say that I think part of the reason that I didn't enjoy it is because like, I don't think any movie could have lived up to that hype. Yeah, the buildup is big. And, you know, that's an awesome little segue because Bruce Willis was also in Pulp Fiction, if memory serves. Was he? Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm outraging people right now by saying (laughs) all of this. (laughs) Everyone's throwing their phones in the river. We can't listen to them anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'll say this. I liked it. I liked this movie. Dare I say it was fine. And I'm sorry to all the diehard, diehard fans out there because I'm not a huge action person, though. You know, it's just, it's not really my genre, but you love it. It's just fun feels like the wrong word to use. And yeah, it's so fun. It's just an enjoyable movie to watch is how I would put it. I enjoyed it. Is it my favorite movie? No. Will it be in my holiday rotation? No. I liked it. It was fine. That was a glowing, glowing <laughs> review. No, but you know what? It's highly quotable. It is highly. There's some good lines in there. Oh, for sure. I love Alan Rickman. I, I love Alan Rickman. I know. May he rest in peace. May he rest in peace. And really, Bruce Willis looked fine in this movie. And so this, that was, yeah. it was some good eye candy. So for that, yeah. Yeah. Alan Rickman, too, looks oh, yeah. quite good looking and enjoyable in this movie because he often plays sort of characters that aren't the most attractive. And so it was fun to see him sort of all dolled up. This was his film debut. Did you know that? I learned it after I watched yeah, it. Yeah. Like he was spotted because he's he was a theater actor. He was in, I don't know the real French name of it, like Dangerous Liaisons. I don't know who, who it was, someone involved in production. Look, look at how detailed the research <laughs> is. A casting director, perhaps? I don't know if it was the <laughs> casting director, to be honest. I'm not sure. But they saw him and they loved him and said, he's got to be in this movie. And this was his film debut. Which, I mean, thank you for pulling him off the stage and into film. Because he has played some amazing characters yes, over the years. Yes, bring him to the masses. We needed him. Yes, he's wonderful. So do we want to talk about Christmas versus not Christmas? Let's talk about it. Okay. So... As everyone listening knows, even I, who had never seen Die Hard, knew, there is a huge debate over whether or not Die Hard is indeed a Christmas movie. Of course, it opens on Christmas Eve. So you could argue the point, but the film was released on July 15th, 1988. So it was a summer blockbuster. I feel like that was a poor choice on the part of the movie studio. Because it's all about Christmas. It is a Christmas movie. Whoa, you're in the it's a Christmas movie camp? I will point out much evidence along the way to support my case, Lori. Okay, <laughs> I I would like to hear it because Bonnie Bedelia, who plays... Who has the best name? Yeah, she sounds like a literary character. Right. Like in a children's novel. Yes. Doesn't Miss she? Bonnie Bedelia. Yeah, <laughs> Grew a garden outside her small cottage. <laughs> She's full cottage core. Like she wears dresses with flowers on them. She has a bonnet of sorts. Right. She's magical in some way. She, But her name just, yeah, such alliteration. Yeah. Bonnie Bedelia, who plays McLean's estranged wife, and Reginald Phil Johnson, who plays Sergeant Al Powell, both admitted to Entertainment Weekly. Guess what? Die Hard's not a Christmas movie. But the screenwriter, Stephen DeSouza, 
said on Twitter, yes, it is a Christmas movie because the studio rejected the Purim draft. And then he hashtagged it, Die Hard is a Christmas movie. Just to be clear, he was the writer. Okay, he was was (laughs) one of two screenwriters, yes. And Bruce Willis himself said it's not a Christmas movie, but rather it's a goddamn Bruce Willis movie, which really... Well, there you go. (laughs) It is a goddamn Bruce Willis movie. But in a poll, 62% of people said Die Hard is not a Christmas movie. But had they seen it or were they like you and they were simply aware of the controversy? Apparently have some more eggnog, Kate. (laughs) (laughs) The controversy and weighed in not knowing all of the evidence that I shall present. Well, I'm looking forward to your evidence because I'm not really sure. I'm going to go ahead and say no. It didn't center around a Christmas theme. I like some magic in my Christmas movies. It did have have some transformation of character. There, it did have some redemption. This is what I like in my Christmas Peace films. Peace on Earth, or at least in Century City. Oh, yeah, that's true. A little bit of local peace on Earth. Okay, maybe. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, aside from, like, Christmas Run DMC. We'll see. I okay. will make my case. All right, we'll go through. The film is based on Roderick Thorpe's 1979 crime novel, Nothing Lasts Forever. And the production budget was $28 million. And the worldwide box office gross was over $141 million. It was the 10th highest grossing film of 1988 and the highest grossing action film. Bruce Willis was paid $5 million for the role, which was a lot of money back then in 1988. And there have been four sequels, video games, and comic books. That was a good investment. I'll say what's interesting, though, is that we think of Die Hard as a goddamn Bruce Willis movie, right? Wasn't meant to be. Wasn't meant to be. 20th Century Fox wasn't really excited about Bruce Willis in the starring role. No, because at this time in history, Bruce Willis was on Moonlighting, playing in a comedic role. Right. And he had only like really starred in one feature film to that point you know, where he was starring, and that was Blind Date, and that was in a comedic role also. So uh, were you with me? I I had a birthday party once, and we all went to go see Blind Date. It was really (laughs) weird because how old, it was like your 12th birthday or 11th birthday, something like that. Like, Yeah, we were pretty young. It's not really like a birthday singer. Yeah. So, but like everybody big was up for the the main action stars. Yeah. Like Robert De Niro, Sylvester Stallone, Nick Nolte, Harrison Ford, Charles Bronson, Mel Gibson, Richard Gere, and like a lot of other people. There were a lot of other Schwarzenegger as well. Oh, yes. Yeah. Him too. And it didn't even seem like Bruce Willis was going to be able to take the movie anyway because he was filming Moonlighting and he was really busy with that schedule. But then, by a twist of fate, Sybil Shepherd got pregnant and they had to push off filming and they he was able to film in that little hiatus for Moonlighting. And the rest is history, diehard history. And now he's an action star. And a good one. I love him in action roles. I really do. You know why I like him? Because he's like the everyman of the action film. Like you're like, 
I could see this regular dude getting pulled into these extreme circumstances. Bruce Willis is just fun to watch on screen. He's really great. And you can see him like as this New York cop who he's having some trouble with his wife. And what ends up happening in the movie and his own redemption story is actually born from a true life situation from the screenwriter, one of the screenwriters, Jeb Stewart. So he took the job of adapting the book into the screenplay because he needed the money, plain and simple. And he was working hard on the script and he was like never home and he would only come home to like put his kids to bed. He was really on edge during his creative process. And he got home and he got into a fight with his wife and he stormed off and he went for a drive. And on this drive, I guess it was late at night, he hit a refrigerator, an empty fridge in the middle of the road. And it was like really dangerous and really scary. And it felt like a near-death experience. And he decided then that the movie would be about a man reconciling with his wife. It's interesting, right? It is interesting. And also not surprising that I assume he was in L.A. That somewhere in L.A. a refrigerator was just cast aside in the middle of the road. (laughs) Like how many near misses have you had driving on the road with like the most random stuff? Not only near misses, I had an actual, I tried, I tried really hard to swerve. This was actually in North Carolina. I was on a road trip and uh, all of a sudden the car in front of me swerved. And then there was, you know, those like big gray bins on wheels. Do you know what I'm talking about? Even they're huge. Uh, They're used in like industrial things in the middle of the highway. (laughs) So I couldn't swerve to my right because I was in the fast lane. And I could only swerve so far to my left because otherwise I was afraid I was going to lose control when I hit the gravel. Yeah. And I almost missed it, but I nicked it and uh, it took out my parking light and uh, left me a little scratch. You're lucky that's all it did. Seriously, I have almost hit a sofa, middle of the freeway, and I have almost hit a deep freezer, middle of the freeway. Just sitting out. That would just take your car out. Well, it would, right? So, I mean, it's scary. I get how it happened. So let's get into it so I can present my case. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) please do. See if you can convince me. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we open on John McClane on the plane and he's traveling from New York to LA on Christmas Eve, which- Point number one. Yes, it is Christmas Eve. We've established this point. This is not make it a Christmas movie, but okay. In the time of COVID, the idea of traveling on Christmas Eve like freaks me out like nothing else. I mean, the idea of, this is why I rarely spend Christmas with my friends and family in Southern California is because I have always lived a plane right away. I did once travel on Christmas. That is the way to go. If you're going to fly around the holidays, fly on Christmas because one, it's not as crowded. And two, all of the flight attendants are making a lot of money. And so So they're they're very happy to be there. I traveled over the holiday season two years ago. We took an international trip and it was bonkers. I will not do that again. It was a lot. I mean, a 16-hour plane ride is a lot anyway, but like- (laughs) Yes. Literally three days before Christmas, it's a whole lot. So John McCain, I I, I did spot him checking out the stewardess. John who? Did I say McCain? (laughs) Oh, man. I'm sorry, Bruce Willis. This is a goddamn (laughs) Bruce Willis movie. John McClane. Yes. Spotted a stewardess and a woman in the airport. So he's got like a little wandering eye. We don't even know that he's married at this point. He does, however, have a very large stuffed bear with a big red bow around it. Like perhaps one would have on a 
Christmas present. Mm, Mm. Perhaps you think of all the things you could give your children, especially when you're traveling, it would be something that could fit in a carry on, but I'm just saying it's fine. Would you like to hear a bit of trivia about the giant bear? Yes, I would. So apparently the giant bear is a bit of a trademark of the film director and it makes an appearance in the hunt for red October (gasps) as well. That's fun. So we pan to the Nakatomi Christmas party in full swing. Christmas party. It is a Christmas party. On Christmas Eve. On in the Christmas film. Eve. Which is We're kind not of even weird. 10 minutes in yet. Okay. First of all, Nakatomi Company, why is your Christmas party on Christmas Eve? Let these people go home to be with their families. And also in the it's office, weird. right? Yeah, like, like let's let's they clearly have a lot of money. They could they have splurged do. on like the Bonaventure. <laughs> It could have been anything else. It could have been a TGI Fridays. Like, get out of the office space. And, I mean, they do have a lovely office space. Sure. I learned that the space that they are in is supposed to be inspired by Frank Lloyd Wright's Falling Water. Yes. I've been to Falling Water. And while I would say that Falling Water is beautiful and this set is beautiful, I didn't really see the connection that, I mean, maybe a little bit. Well, what was interesting, too, is Nakatomi Plaza was actually 20th Century Fox's headquarters in Fox Plaza that was under construction. Yeah, so they actually did. I know. So they filmed it there. And hey, why not? Right. Really? They only had a $28 million budget. They had to pay Bruce Willis $5 million. There's your your saying. Right. Now they only have $23 million left. (laughs) So we're at the Christmas party and Holly calls home and she's talking to her young daughter who asks, is daddy coming home with you? Okay, no, but like my favorite part about this is that she calls and the little girl answers the phone and she says, McLean residence, this is Lucy McLean. And I was like, wow, nobody would ever let their kid do that these days. Oh no, don't tell them your name. Don't tell them your mommy and daddy aren't home. (laughs) Right. And I mean, nobody has a house phone anyway, but nonetheless, I was like, oh, now were you ever instructed to answer the phone that way? No. I was not either. I would say hello. Hello. (laughs) In my own shy child way, hello. Hello. (laughs) And then people would be like, is your mom there? (laughs) (laughs) Even when I got older, when I was like literally on my own, but just terrible phone shyness always, someone would call like a solicitor and I just didn't have like just the gumption to be like, I'm not interested. Thank you. Or no, thank you. And hang up the phone. They would start their spiel. And I'd be like, um, my mom's not home. Like I was an adult and they'd be like, Oh, uh, should I call back? I'm like, yeah, call back. Like I'll deal with it later. I can't just tell you no. Yeah. No, has like people would mispronounce my last name. And so then I would know that it wasn't somebody that I knew. Right. And I'd be like, Oh, I'm sorry. She's not available right now. Can I, can I have her call you back when she's home? I lived all sorry, by myself. Sorry, there's no one here by that <laughs> name. <laughs> you butchered my last name. So Holly gets on with the nanny and says, Hey, can you make up the spare room for John just in case? And we're like, Oh, okay. so we know that like, Oh, Hard times, right? Who makes up the hard spare times room in the McLean for the dad house. and the and the mm-hmm. husband? Yes, they yeah. live on opposite coasts. Things aren't going well. So John McLean is picked up at the airport, sent by the what the company, right? The company, sent the Nakatomi the limo. Nak- Katie, I want to pronounce this correctly. You Nakatomi. know, I'm sorry, I didn't Nakatomi. Yeah, I didn't okay. write it down. Okay. So it's I- important to me. I want to get it right. Yeah. Because I'm going to butcher McLean McCain all pod long. I really right. want to get this part right. So. right. so he's picked up by a limo driver named Argyle. And it's Argyle's first day on the job. 
and John's first time in the limo, which was hilarious because then we see John in the front seat right. with the driver. <laughs> which I don't, I mean, my first time in a limo, I knew where to go in the back, but I do sometimes feel weird. I don't anymore, but like when Uber first started, I was always like, is it like a taxi? Do we get in the back? <laughs> like, I don't know. It's just, it just felt a little weird to me, but now I feel very comfortable. So we learned that Polly and the kids live in LA and he lives in New York and they're basically estranged because of her career. Right. Well, because she moved for this job and they were going to relocate, but he is a cop and he couldn't just like up and move. He had to right. stay and finish out stuff and then right. that's been hard on them. But I would also like to present a piece of evidence for it being a Christmas film because we hear playing on the radio Christmas in Hollis by Run DMC. Yes, we do. And it was a fun listen. And I actually really really enjoyed that. Great choice. Yep. So we see that John's wife, Holly, is pursued by the office asshole, Ellis. Yeah, the smarmy office dude. Mm -hmm. We've all met him. Mm -hmm. He exists in every company. Everywhere. So Argyle drives him straight from the airport to the Nakatomi Christmas party. And, you know, John's not really sure how it's going to go. So Argyle says, you know what, I'm just going to I'm going to go down to the parking garage. I'm going to wait for your call. You let me know how it's going. And if it's not going well, we'll just leave. Argyle is fishing for a good tip. And I enjoy his hustle. He's just a good guy. He's doing he a good job. It's yeah. his first day on the job. It's probably a pretty good job, right? He works for this rich corporation. We like Argyle. I like him. So John goes into the building and <laughs> he has to search for his wife's name in the directory. Which, okay, because it's it's her maiden name, right? Because she's right. Because he originally name. goes to search for McLean. Right. And, and then it's uh, not she's there. not there. But what I thought was interesting is that even though it looked like a very old-fashioned touchscreen to our very modern eyes. Back at that time. For 88, that was like that revolutionary. Was super advanced technology. So it sort of sets the scene of like, we're in a very like advanced building, right? They have like the best of it's everything. It's a smart building. Yeah. Yes. And the fact that, oh, uh, Holly's not using your name anymore, John. Yeah. So, and I have to say my mother decided to use her maiden name at a certain point in my childhood. And it, and it is like, Oh, she made a switch. She did. She switched. I didn't know that. She hyphenated for a while. And okay. then maybe she was like officially hyphenated, but I think okay. she often like switched to her maiden name. How did your dad feel about it? I don't think it was his favorite. And I know yeah. I, I'm pretty sure that like my grandma on my dad's side was like, you know, mm -hmm. because like women just didn't do such things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I think for the most part, my dad was okay with it, but sometimes he would get called Mr. So-and-so. Oh yes. Uh, her maiden name. Right. And I, and I think he was like Mr. Mm. Maiden name. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. Um, I could see that. So Joe Tagagi. Did I say it right? Tagagi? I don't know. I am terrible with names. <laughs> As am I. And it's always like really important to me to get it right. I am no stranger to asking people, can you please pronounce your name? I want to get it right. It's important to me. That's a nice way to say it. Yeah, because I it's important to me too, because a lot of people see my name written and for whatever reason, they say Cat. And there's nothing wrong with the name Cat. It's just not my name. Well, Katie, I introduce myself as Lori. This is not an unusual name. Okay. Hi, Laura. Yes. I get Laura back. I get Laura back so often. It just blows my mind. I don't understand that. I used to get It's a different Kathy name. Back. Again, Kathy is a lovely name. I know many Kathys, but of the many iterations of Catherine I have gone by, 
Kathy was never one of them. It and wasn't. I was like, that's not my name. Yeah. <laughs> so. It's it's always strange to me. I've gotten Lauren. I've gotten Laura. I'm like, what part of Lori makes you think that's a nickname? Wait, didn't you get Glory once also? Oh my God. So once I, <laughs> <laughs> once I went to a hostess stand to put in my name for a restaurant, she's like, name? I'm like, Lori. And she stops and she looks at me <laughs> and she goes, oh. <gasps> That is such a beautiful name. And she had to see the bewilderment on my face because. Because <laughs> that's just not something people say to me when your name is Lori. I don't love the name. I have feelings about the name. No offense to Lori's out there. I know a lot of you. But so she's like, oh my God, that's such a beautiful name. And I looked at her and I like cocked my head. I'm like, really? And she's like, yeah. And I went and I told my husband, she just called my name beautiful. And he was like, what? Like we all agree. It's just not one of those names that's beautiful. <laughs> then when our table was ready, she calls the name Glory. Glory <laughs> party of two. I'm like, uh, is that me? It was me. See? She thought my name was Glory. Which is kind of beautiful, right? Like- I-, I guess so. She thought so. Yeah. Moving right. on. Back to drunk diehard. I'm hot. This is what happens when you drink during a podcast. You go on tangents. I see you're you're looking a little a little flushed. A little flushed. Yeah, this is what alcohol about to get real sloppy. (laughs) This is the problem with spiked eggnog is that it's sweet and delicious, and you don't really realize you're drinking. Well, it doesn't take a lot. I was three sips in, and I already took off my shirt. I was. I mean, I have (laughs) I have a shirt under it. (laughs) We're not getting that crazy, but it's not that racy. Unlike the many topless people who pop up in Die Hard. I was going to say, <laughs> unlike the Nakatomi Christmas party, but we'll get there. <laughs> so Joe introduces himself to John and he introduces Ellis, who's the head of international development. And Ellis is like busy doing coke at the desk, which. Because it's the 80s. And it's a Christmas party, damn it. So right. why He's not? A, a businessman in the 80s. Oh, so good. But he's also at Holly's desk. Like, yeah, like I don't want your Coke residue on my desk, Ellis, right. again. Jeez. Rude. So we learn that the building is seven floors under construction, and the party is part Christmas party, to your argument, Christmas. and part celebration that they have just closed a major deal. Oh, and Holly was involved in that, right? Was yeah, she, she was. The like, they gave yeah. her a Rolex as a thank you. Oh, yeah. Good yeah. job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Holly comes in, and it's, like, super awkward. And she asks John, where are you staying? And she tells him, you know, the kids would love for you to stay at the house. And she says, I would, too. I've missed you. Nice. Okay. Kind of a heartwarming Christmas moment. Yeah. And he says, I guess you didn't miss my name. Burn. Burn, burn, burn. So they begin kind of like arguing. So we're back to old patterns here. We see a Pacific Courier truck pull into Nakatomi Plaza's garage and like some threatening guys with like really long hair, like blonde dudes come out to the lobby and then like, I don't know, they shoot the security guard couple of things. First of all, when John McLean goes to go up the elevator to the party, there's this dude standing by the elevator. Like, yes, I is he the that. elevator man? Who is he? They never really explain it, but he's a little mysterious. And John looks at him. Like he's also right. looking he at the, the security 
Yeah, he's also looking at the security cameras. So, you know, in his own cop brain, he's like assessing the sitch. Right. right? And so you're like, you're already kind of like, oh, something seems a little weird. Something's amiss. So the security guard notices the truck go into the parking garage and it's kind of like, huh. And then this car comes like screeching around and it's all that's happening is the Christmas party. That's all that's happening. The Christmas party. (laughs) And on Christmas Eve. On Christmas Eve. Just saying. And he's like not suspicious at all. He just kind of sits there and is like, la la la. Maybe he's drinking spiked eggnog. Could be. And it wouldn't have really mattered whether he had all of his wits about him or not. No, because they come in and just shoot him point blank in the head. He's a goner. It's done. That's all there is. And like, okay, now we know like Hans and the gang, they're bad mofos. Suddenly, like, they just come in and they're, like, shooting up the place. And John, who's in, like, the private bathroom of the office. Yeah. I think of the owner or the, I don't know if he's the owner or the CEO. The very important person. man, who wouldn't want a private bathroom? So John's in there and he's, like, trying to get ready for the Christmas party. And he can hear, like, oh, my God, there's just chaos going on outside. Important plot point when he is on the airplane landing he's a little nervous and the businessman next to him who flies all the time tells him hey if you want to like quickly adapt to like the new spot that you're in take off your shoes walk on the carpet and your make fists with your toes on the carpet okay i just thought john was barefoot because he was just changing clothes and he was barefoot caught him at an inopportune time Nope, he was following the advice of his seatmate on the okay, airplane. Okay, fair enough. So he hears all this gunfire. He grabs his gun. We see a couple scrambling. But not his shoes. Not his shoes. We see a couple, like, having sex in one of the office. Yes, to which I wrote, man, that's a bummer to have a terrorist attack during the middle of your office affair on Christmas Eve. Maybe in the 80s, parties did get that wild. Coke in the 80s. It was a different time. It was a different time. You know, like when you go back and you like watch Mad Men and you're like, oh my gosh, people were drinking all the time in the office and like doing all this stuff. And then made the workday way better, by the way. Right. So like, I think the 80s were still like slowly coming out of that. I mean, like, look at how much smoking was happening in this movie. Oh, yeah. Did you catch that? Like people just don't smoke in movies like that anymore. I have to say, like, I generally think smoking is super disgusting, but there was a moment in this film where John McClane was smoking, looking super fine. And I was like, man, you're making that look real cool. That's like it's working. stopped letting people do it in the movies because precisely because it of that. It so cool. I was like, wow, if I was an impressionable youth, like that might sell me. Right. So Hans addresses the company staff and he says something like, due to the legacy of greed around the globe, I don't know what he said, but they're out for, for some sort of payback or payday. And he takes the boss, Joe, away. Right. But we see that Holly, John McClane's wife, is kind of like, don't say anything. Don't say, like, don't let him know it's you. Don't let him know it's you. And then eventually, uh, I think because he's afraid they're going to take somebody else instead of him, he steps up and does the he brave thing. seems like a good guy, right? He does seem like a yeah. good guy. Sad. Hans wants access to the computers because there's a code that unlocks the vault that holds $640 million in negotiable bearer bonds. And I looked up like, what are bearer bonds? And there's some sort of like unregistered type of of investment security for whatever that means. Like whoever bears them can cash them. Yeah. Like, so I don't know that there's a whole lot of traceability, but they want him. Joe insists he doesn't know the code and Hans kills him because Hans don't play. So that's it. Joe's gone. And And he decides that he has his like genius code cracker. So he doesn't really need him anyway. 
So. Right. Like, we're going to figure this out on our own. Joe, you gots to go. Yeah. Meanwhile, it's all gunfire all over. And Argyle just doesn't hear it because he's chilling in the limo listening to music. And he wants that big tip. He's just still waiting to hear from John. He's just waiting. Can't yeah. do anything. Yeah. So the bad guys are doing a bunch of stuff to the building. like, And right. John is feeling stressed. He's like, think, think. And in my mind, I'm thinking, I bet he's honestly just like mostly upset because he doesn't have his shoes. He's making I mean, his way through this building and it's like, I don't I don't freaking have shoes on. He doesn't have shoes. Dangerous in his here. His wife is in danger. He can't call anybody. Oh yeah, his wife's in danger. <laughs> like he's really mad he doesn't have shoes on. Uh, fun fact about not having shoes on. They made a pair of rubber feet for yes. him to wear during the filming, I love it. parts of the filming, so that it appeared that he had bare feet, but his feet were protected because yes. there was a lot going on. There was. You can't even say that Bruce Willis didn't get hurt. He, he does did. have permanent hearing loss from this film. He what? said, quote, due to an accident on the first Die Hard, I suffered two-thirds partial hearing loss in my left ear. Do you think that he got a good workman's comp settlement for that? I don't. I think he got paid $5 million and he's like, I have starred in four sequels since. And you know what? This is a good payday mm, for me. Could be. Yippee-ki-yay. Yeah. Like some blonde guys with long hair. It's one of the guys. Is it Franco? Is it Alexander? I don't know. They look the same to me. I think they're brothers. And he meets John and he says, I promise I won't hurt you. Come out. And John appears with a gun and points it to his head. And Franco slash Alexander says to him, you won't hurt me because you're a policeman. There are rules for policemen. Right. And they have an altercation. They end up rolling down. Well, no, wait. His response is really great. He says, that's what my boss or my captain or whatever keeps telling me. <laughs> <laughs> that's what they say. Anyway, they end up like rolling down the stairs and the guy is dead. John takes his stuff. And then John McClane is in an elevator shaft as he is through much of this film. So many elevator shafts. And... He sends the body downstairs for yes. his terrorist slash bad guy friends to find in the elevator. And written on the shirt in blood, it says, now I have a machine gun. Ho, ho, ho. It's written in blood? I thought it was written in that Sharpie that he's writing the dude's names on his arm with. But he, isn't he writing in black on his arms and the, on yeah. the shirt it's in red? Is it in red? Yeah. That's kind of gross to write something in blood. I mean, that takes like time and that's gross. I mean, maybe not. Maybe it was a Sharpie. I don't know. I assumed it was blood, but okay. either way, ho, ho, ho is something you really only tend to say at when? (laughs) Christmas time. (laughs) This is also when Holly is first tipped off to be like, oh, something's going on. John is on a mission. My hero. (laughs) So John uses the radio that he grabbed from that one blonde dude and he calls the police to like, like, Hey, Oh my God, this thing's going down. I need some help. And they tell him like, call 911. He knows the special police emergency channel Channel, to use. And they're like, this is an emergency channel. Why are, Oh, because, Oh, sorry. Before this, he tried, he trips fire alarm and the bad guys realize it. And so they call and they're like, oops, that was a false alarm. And so all of the resources get turned around. They never show up. So then he calls and they're like, Oh, this is that same place where there was that false fire alarm. Right. And she says, sir, this is an emergency line. And he says, (laughs) does it sound like I'm ordering a pizza? (laughs) 
Good. And they reluctantly send an officer, which is Sergeant Al Powell, who was played by Reginald Bill Johnson. And that's the dad from Family Matters. I love him. He gives me so many warm fuzzies. Me too. So other blonde guy, Franco Alexander, unclear. He says, I want blood. No one kills him but me. Because I think that was his brother. It was his brother. Okay. It's personal now. Like three of the bad guys chase John on the roof with freaking machine guns. And it's just like spraying blood bullets everywhere. How John didn't get hit by one of those bullets is just so ridiculous to me, but okay. There's I mean there is a I mean lot how of could they be such bad shot? I don't even think you have to be a good shot when you're spraying that many bullets. Okay, so with all like the exposed metal and steel and stuff everywhere, even if you didn't shoot him outright, like, like a surely, ricochet. <laughs> surely there would be ricochet bullets. Like he would be or like shrapnel or like he would be messed up. Right. It's not that time in the movie yet, though. Okay, sorry. Funny thing is that, one, we're led to believe that these are German people. Yes. Although I I don't think they necessarily say that, but it sounds like they're speaking German. They are not. They're just speaking some sort of gibberish. When this movie was released in Germany, they just said they were European. Oh, (laughs) that's funny. So this is where John McClane uses, I guess it's like an AR, to anchor himself like down the elevator shaft and he falls and then catches himself. It's all very dramatic. Okay, so talk about suspension of disbelief. He uses, he like wedges the gun into the, to keep him from falling, right? Yes. Like braces against the wall, the opening. I can believe that a large gun could withstand that strength. What I don't believe is that the strap... (laughs) Like whatever class yes, on the strap was mm-hmm. enough to hold his weight as he like dangled there for a really long time. Yeah. So the sergeant arrives at the Nakatomi Plaza yes. and they tell him, oh, all is well. And he's like, okay, well, you know, I'm going to take a look around anyway. And you know what? We don't want him to die because we found out that his wife is pregnant and it's Christmas Eve and like he's supposed to get her snacks and he can't die. Right. He can't die. I was really worried about that. And we see that he's like walking towards the elevator and there's somebody standing there with a gun just like waiting for him and so it's a little tense and then he just decides like you know what never mind like this is ridiculous and he turns around to leave so john encounters the brunette bad guy don't know his name blonde guy arrives john shoots him brunette goes after john big mistake because john shoots him from under the table so he is like a much better shot yeah well and doesn't he say to him like the next time he's like you're all out of table next time you have a chance to kill somebody like don't hesitate and he's like all right and that was it so sergeant al goes outside and oops a body falls on his car and they pan to argyle who's still grooving in the limo and sergeant al calls for backup and they're just like they don't want to send backup on christmas eve they just like really really don't they don't want to pay time and a half John radios Hans and he tells him, I'm a fly in the ointment, a pain in the ass. And Hans says, do you really think you have a chance against us, Mr. Cowboy? And that's when he gives the famous line, yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. And the line was actually a joke. Bruce Willis said, it was a throwaway. I was just trying to crack up the crew and I never thought it was going to be allowed to stay in the film. Look at what it's become. Right. And in the edited TV version of this movie, the line is changed to yippee ki melon farmer. <laughs> I mean, I really just feel like that's one of those situations where they should have just let it be like, yippee ki mother. Beep. And then like, Keep everybody it. just knows what's coming. Like, that's my favorite. And like, when they 
edit for TV and you can totally read the lips oh, of the person. Oh, for sure. But they just blank out the word. It's the stupidest thing ever, but I love it. So Hans learns. The dude that he killed had some of the C4 and the detonators in his bag. Yeah, and Hans wants it. So he Badly. seems like mildly stressed for the first time. This is the first time we like see some tension in him. And oh crap, the media arrives. Holly goes to Hans and they talk and he doesn't know that she's related to John yet. No, which is important. We don't want him to know that. That would give him a lot of leverage. And important plot point as well. Holly, I think, gets frustrated with John early in the movie. And so she flips down the picture of him and her and the kids that's in her office. So there's not a picture of the two of them together. Right. So. So in the meantime, Argyle sees the report on the news when the police first show up, the is he the chief? Who is he? Chief I don't Dwayne. Know. Dwayne. Yes, Chief Dwayne steps out. And who is Chief Dwayne? But none other than the principal from the Breakfast Club. Okay, I knew I recognized him. I didn't place it. And like, it really felt like the principal from the Breakfast Club Stepped left out. the high school and <laughs> got a job as a police chief in LA. Because This it's is like what I moonlight doing on the Christmas same Eve. character. <laughs> So he orders the police to go in and it's it's just escalating the situation. It's not making things better. Right, because they have a, a lot of firepower and the LAPD is just no match for that. And Hans directs his people, like, bring in the car. And then we see, like, I don't know, do they have, like, grenade launchers? Like, Yeah, they have, like, missiles and, and rocket launchers. And- yeah. We see John doing, like, some electrical work. I don't know. He's a genius in all things, apparently. And he drops an explosive down the elevator shaft. And there's just, like... <laughs> okay, wait, no, he's... He's not doing electrical work. What is he doing? He's putting fuses into a block of explosives. Yeah, that's electrical work. No, it's just... It's work that involves electricity. No, there's no electricity involved. He like lights... I think he lights it on fire. Like those are... They're fuses. Okay, he's being... He's doing pyrotechnic work. Yes. Rephrase. Okay. And Hans knows it's him when there's like all the explosions. He's like, Roy... Right. Ray Rogers. And this is when asshole Ellis goes in to negotiate with Hans and mm, he ends up dead because he's an asshole and like not sad about it. So Hans talks to the chief of police and what is he like, is Dwayne like a master hostage negotiator? Like he's not good at this job and he wants to know. Hans, what are your demands? And so Hans just like spouts off all these like impossible, like release the prisoners, like in all these different regions all over the world. Right. And like at one time, one of the other bad guys is like, who? And he's like, I don't know. I read about it in a magazine. (laughs) It was funny. And he's like, you have two hours. (laughs) Right. You have two hours to do all this stuff. And then you're going to like, and then we're going to have a helicopter come and take all of the people off of the roof and then they'll go to LAX and then they'll get more instructions. Like, uh, it's very funny. Yes. And okay. It's Christmas Eve. LEX is really busy right now. Well, and also the question that just kept coming to mind as I'm watching this and I'm thinking about Hans Gruber and his whole plan. It's like, wasn't there an easier way? (laughs) Like, didn't they shut down over the holidays at some point, like after the Christmas Eve party? Is is that building going to be empty? You couldn't wait 12 hours, Hans. And then you would have like just had to take out the security guard. And, Which like, was easy peasy. You did that right when you walked in from the beginning. Like right. that would have been, you know what? That's really, that's a big plot hole. I mean, it's just, like, I feel like they're so advanced in everything that they're doing. 
Like they couldn't have found a way to like quick get in there, have the security guard disarm something and then like be done with it. This is where I feel like I know I think that they wanted the gentleman to kind of die a noble death, you know, of like refusing to give this code. But it would have been a lot more plausible if like he really needed the code, like he needed that first code from this guy, which would like justify this whole shenanigan that's going on. But he didn't even really need it. So why? Why cause so much trouble? I mean, aside from the fact that it makes a great movie about Christmas. We're just going to pretend that that's not true. So Hans follows the wires and he, like, I guess, like, like following breadcrumbs or whatever, he finds John McClane. And he pretends to be like a scared office employee with his American accent. And that's when John's like, if you want to stay alive, stay with me. John does figure out this person is not to be trusted. But at first, you think he's been fooled, right? You're like, right. Oh, no, he's like, so interesting thing that got cut is that early on, there's a scene where you see all of the bad guys synchronizing their watches, and they all have the same watch on. And this is like a point is made of this, except that got cut because it happens in in the back of that big truck. But when it happens, there's not an ambulance in the back of that big truck because they didn't decide to do that until later. And so the way that John was supposed to figure out that it's Hans is that he goes to give him a cigarette. John notes the watch on his hand that he's been seeing on all the dudes he killed. Because I did wonder, how did he know when he gave him the gun to give him an empty gun? I figured that it was just a test to see. Like, if I give him this empty gun and he tries to kill me, obviously he's a bad guy. Okay. Um, Which I think is plausible, too. I mean... Sure. So Hans ends up getting his detonators and john's wife knows he's still alive because that blonde guy's like so pissed she's like oh he's way too mad i know right i know john's still alive because only john could piss off someone to this level right right so this is when john ends up with the glass in the foot and it's disgusting i literally had to look away because it just i don't do well with the blood and it was just gross because hans realizes during this like interlude where they're hanging out together that he's barefoot so then he's like oh Yes, let's make it tough. If we shoot out all the glass, he's going to have a hard time. Right. Since we can't get him with a bullet, maybe we can get him with the glass. Maybe we can slow him down. (laughs) A shard of glass will be his undoing. So then, so so there's a scene in the bathroom where he is taking the glass out of his foot and he is talking with Al about his wife and how he loves her. But it was the moment where he says, tell my wife she's the best thing that ever happened to a bum like me. Tell her I'm sorry. Hans and the team get to open the vault. They're really excited. I'm sorry. I just have to bring up another point in terms of suspension of disbelief. You're saying there are, there are plot holes and there are problems with believability in this this Christmas film see here's the magic part right um no he's like taking out five of the bad guys none of them had shoes that would fit him I know the first one didn't but oh yeah like of course I kill a guy with smaller feet than me right But like you're desperate for like shoes. Wouldn't you check like every person? Like because he just... really needs shoes more than he needs a gun. He needs shoes. Right. Like come yes. on. So anyway, but then also the other thing is, so it sort of seems like the whole point of this process with the hostages and the demands for the release of prisoners is that they want the FBI on the scene. 
Yes. The FBI does finally show up with agents. And the reason that they want the FBI to come is that they've done their homework and they know that the FBI are going to follow a terrorist uh, playbook. Okay. And one of the parts of the terrorist playbook is to cut power to the space that they're in. And they wanted the whole power grid cut. Right. And this is important because... There's like seven layers of protection on this vault. And the last one is like when you get through the sixth layer of protection, which is all kind of mechanical, there's this electromagnetic thing that comes into play. And that's the one that they like don't know how they're going to break through. Like they don't have a plan for it, except Hans does. Because it turns out when the power's cut, the electromagnetic uh, mechanism fails and it allows the vault to open. So his whole plan all along is to like delay things long enough to get through the first six levels and then have the FBI come and cut the power. Like it's a really bad plan that your final fail safe doesn't work when the power goes out. I see. Okay. Yeah. And then because the McLean kids end up on TV, Hans realizes that Holly is John's wife and he takes right, her. He flips so, up that picture yep, and is like, and he sees. Oh. John discovers that there is just like a layer of C4 set to detonate just below the roof. And they have brought all the people up to the roof. And they had sort of said that their plan was like the people were going to escape in a helicopter. Yes. But really what the plan was, was to to blow blow up all the people on the roof while they escaped out the parking garage. So all the people on the roof, John kills the long blonde haired gentleman who just doesn't die. He dies hard. Um, (laughs) Die hard. (laughs) And then he gets up to the roof where all of the hostages are. He takes out the guy holding them hostage but then he's like you gotta get out of here the roof's gonna blow (laughs) but the people won't go because they're like confused and terrified and then there's army helicopter and so he starts shooting his gun into the air to like scare them to get them to get the hell out of there except the army people are like there's a terrorist take him out and so they're trying they target him and this is when john ties the fire hose around his waist and jumps off the roof So, yeah, he figures out that they have Holly and that she is on the 30th floor. He needs to get to the 30th floor, but they're shooting at him. And so he devises a clever plan, knowing the roof's about to blow, where he takes the fire hose from the roof, wraps it around his waist. Because that would hold securely. I don't know. He would have to know some Boy Scout knots. So he decides that he's going to jump off the roof, presumably like plow through one of the windows. Like Tarzan through a window. Right. So, and I'm sitting here thinking, this is the man that was afraid of flying on an airplane, but he's about to launch himself off of the side of a skyscraper uh, with a fire hose tied tied around. But hey, you know, he doesn't have enough momentum. To get through the window. Right. He pushes off and he shoots at the window and then he plows through. Yeah, it was a cool move. It was a real movie moment. Well, and then this is my favorite part is that he kind of has this moment of like, oh, I did it. Oh, that was amazing. And then all of a sudden the hose comes loose from the roof and it starts to pull him out the window to fall to his death. And this, I think, is the moment of Bruce Willis acting genius in this film because I believed that he was terrified that he was going to fall out of that window to his death. And he does a great job. So Argyle in the parking garage, man, he's been there a long, long time. 
right? Yes. Doesn't he have to pee at some point? I don't know. He sees the ambulance drive out of the Pacific Courier truck. And he knows stuff is up because he's tuned into the news. So he drives the limo straight into it and he punches the bad guy computer whiz like out because he's a badass. I wrote down, John has two bullets left. Yeah. So he finally comes upon Holly and Hans and there's one more terrorist and he looks and he's- Yeah. The other terrorist who we need to talk about this. This is really important. He looks exactly like Huey Lewis. So (laughs) I Googled is Huey Lewis in and what pops up? Die Hard. So wait, hold on. Okay. So- I click on it and up pops the wiki for Dennis Hayden, the actor who plays <laughs> Eddie, the other terrorist. It says, and I quote, Hayden's diehard character, Eddie, was parodied in the Cleveland show's parody episode, Die Semi-Hard, where he is voiced by rocker Huey Lewis because actor Dennis Hayden and Huey Lewis look very similar. <laughs> he looks exactly like Huey Lewis. You didn't catch that? I didn't, but did I say this earlier when we were talking about Bonnie Bedelia? Do you know what I Googled? Magical Bonnie Bedelia. I Googled, is Bonnie Bedelia related to Mary Stuart Masters? <laughs> oh, she does look like her. Yeah. Like, yes, and not just look, does. like they're like the way they say words and the way that like their mannerisms so are. So are they? No. Oh. <laughs> no. And in fact, there's like all these conspiracies that like she's actually Mary Stuart Masterson's mom. And like. It does look like her. Do Like I was like, they must be related. Nope. And uh, Dennis Hayden is not Huey Lewis. <laughs> yeah. Um. So what happens is he's sitting there and he's like, I have two bullets. What am I going to do? Which is really unfortunate because he has had a lot of firepower this whole time. Indeed. And then he like looks at the mail cart and is like, oh, and you think, what is there that he sees that makes him feel like he's going (laughs) to, right. He's going to give them all paper cuts. (laughs) (laughs) Death by paper cuts actually sounds really awful. So then he like comes out, he has his machine gun, but there's Hans with a gun to Holly's head. And so he's like, and keep in mind, the machine gun doesn't have any bullets in it, but they don't know that. So uh, he's like, oh, oh, like, you know, don't hurt her. And he throws the gun down, puts his hands behind his head. And they're like, oh, we've got him. This is when we discover what the mail cart was for. He took the tape from the mail cart and he taped his gun to his back. But I have to ask, he was so sweaty and so dirty and so bloody. What so dirty. tape was going to stick to him well enough to hold a gun? Yeah, that's some industrial tape right I there. I want that tape. Anyway, so he cleverly grabs the gun before they realize what's happening. Holly's far enough away from Hans that he's able to shoot Hans, shoot the other guy. The momentum from the bullet pushes Hans backwards towards the window. So apparently he has a lot of momentum and he Mm. breaks through the window. The only way I would believe that is if like the bullet went through Hans out the window and shattered the glass. It seemed ridiculous, but okay. And we think this is the end of Hans. It's all over. But then we see, oh my God, he's still holding onto Holly's wrist. Well, she snagged on him on a watch. So he unclasps the Rolex 
And then Hans falls to his death. And I, it's funny because I thought this when I was watching and I was like, oh, he does really look scared as he's falling. He does. It was really good. So, yeah. So they told him because I think he did actually fall, you know, probably onto like one of those big poofy things, you know. So he fell a little bit in real life okay. when they were filming. So I'm sure it was a little bit nerve wracking. And they told him, OK, like we're going to let you go on the count of three. And then they let him go on the count of two. Oh. That was like a genuinely terrified reaction. I love that. That's a fun bit of trivia. Yeah, did he love it though? <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't matter. Made for good film. So then John and Holly hug and kiss passionately. The most like loving gaze that happens in the whole thing is between John and Al. <laughs> <laughs> it was sweet. It was very sweet, but it was very like oh, my person. Oh, oh, and I think that Sergeant L is in the sequel. I think he's in part I think two. He is yeah. I knew that the blonde guy just like doesn't die. Like so, he suddenly comes out and starts shooting. So I didn't remember though that Al is yes. the one who takes him out. That's why we love um, Al. And it just ties the whole thing up in a nice red Christmas bow. (laughs) Case made. No, I have one more point. Tell me. Well, first, Holly punches the reporter that like... She does. That was fun. ...disclosed all the stuff, which was great. But then as the credits roll, what is playing? Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. Is this a song that you play in July? Okay, but it is, what, Century City in Southern California where it never snows. I'm sure there were some ashes raining down from the burning building, though. I have made my case for Die Hard being a Christmas film. What's funny is at one point in the film, John McClane appears and now his white tank top is black. And I literally was like, wait, did he change clothes? No, he was just that dirty. But the costume department had 17 undershirts and like different stages of like (laughs) disarray, degradation. Yeah, for his character, which was really funny. And in 2007, Bruce Willis donated John McClane's undershirt to the Smithsonian. So if you go to the Smithsonian, you can check it out, which is pretty cool. I am now glad that I've seen it. And right. I I'll go back and see it again. It was fun. It didn't give me the Christmas warm fuzzies, but like it was a good time. I think next holiday season, there'll be an ad for it playing because it does play around the holidays. And you'll be like, oh, <laughs> Like if we could devise some sort of drinking game associated with it, like every time XYZ happens and Bruce Willis doesn't get shot, (laughs) take a drink. Take a drink. So thank you so much for joining us. I hope that you have believed my case and you will now consider Die Hard a Christmas (laughs) film. If you can't wait to hear more, please subscribe so you never miss an episode. And because we're still newbies in this space, if you'd leave us a rating and review wherever you listen, it would mean everything. You can find us on social media on Instagram and Facebook at the Untitled Gen X Podcast. We hope you keep in touch, beautiful people. Bye. Happy holidays.